So this evening we're looking at Psalm 120. And our theme for this evening is Deliver Me, O Lord. Deliver Me, O Lord. The world is not a friendly place to someone who turns to Jesus Christ and repentance, in repentance and faith. If he surrenders his life to Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, if his life is transformed by God's grace, if he's born again, then that person soon realises the attitude of the majority towards him has changed. People in generally aren't exactly queuing up to applaud his decision. They don't gather around him, giving him congratulations and advice. Indeed, those who convert from such religions as Islam are ostracised by their families and communities. Even their very lives may be at risk. But in this country, people converting to Christianity from no religious background don't face such opposition. There will probably be no overtly hostile reaction. Rather, there's likely to be an air of puzzled disapproval. If you're a new convert to Christianity, you get the distinct impression that you have crossed a line. You get the feeling that most people no longer consider that you're one of them. Yet the Bible tells us we shouldn't be surprised at this. The Apostle James warns us, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now the word world here, of course, means the present world system and all that goes with it. It's the outlook on life of the majority of people. That's what makes someone an enemy of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Christians are to reject absolutely everything in the world around them. But it does mean that we are to resist the basic assumptions of the world's thinking. A clean break with all of that is absolutely essential if a Christian is to live life as God intended. In Psalm 120, the psalmist has reached a crisis. It's plain he no longer fits in with those around him. In fact, their outlook on life and behaviour is driving him to distraction. So he cries out to God to intervene to save him from this terrible atmosphere. First, I want to see you. I want you to see how he's pleading to be saved. He's pleading to be saved. Now, when speaking of Christian conversion, some people use the term a Damascus Road experience. By it, they mean an instant change from total atheism to being a committed follower of Christ. But even where such a dramatic conversion does occur, it hasn't in fact happened instantly. God's work in the person's life doesn't begin when the person is converted. It starts much earlier. The Spirit of God is speaking to us before we ever realise it. He might begin by using a chance remark by a Christian friend or a relative. Maybe later we're given Christian literature, perhaps a booklet or a tract. Possibly someone gives us a New Testament or even a complete Bible. We may go on to accept an invitation to some course explaining the Christian gospel. Or perhaps we take up an invitation to a church service 
In any of these ways and in all of these ways, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, even though we don't know it's him. Other people are quite likely to notice that we're beginning to take more interest in spiritual things. And they may well say to us, why do you bother? There's plenty of time to enjoy life without getting yourself involved in all of that. Yet we're starting to realise that there's far more to life than the mere existence those people know. We have discovered there's something better, and that's what the Spirit of God is calling us to. He's telling us it's time to leave the life that we're used to. It's time to discover a new life of living God's way. And it's this point that the writer of Psalm 120 has reached. He can no longer bear his life as it is. Listen to verses 1 and 2. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now lies are everywhere in this world. Many in public life have been caught lying. To give a few examples. In 1998, US President Bill Clinton lied on TV about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Here in the UK, MP Jonathan Aitken was convicted of perjury in 1995. And more up to date, in 2018, the MP for Peterborough lost her job because she lied about speeding. And there are many more examples that could be mentioned. So many politicians have been found guilty of lying, it's hard to trust anyone in the public sphere. But there are lies in the private sphere as well. People lie at work. They lie about their hours, their lunch breaks, their expenses. They lie about mistakes they've made. Drivers lie about not being aware of certain speed limits or not being aware of certain parking restrictions. Lies are everywhere. And they don't just mislead, they can actually hurt other people. You see, the lie people tell to get themselves off the hook often ends up putting other people on the hook. And then, of course, there's a poison spread through gossip. Now, a lot of gossip has a seed of truth in it, but it's usually exaggerated in the telling just to spice it up. Most people in this world see nothing wrong with lying. They may not lie all the time about everything, but they prefer to be economical with the truth far more frequently than they'd care to admit. So people who have a yearning to change can get to the stage where they don't believe any, they can trust anything they hear, they don't believe they can depend on anyone they meet. In short, it's a time when we become profoundly disillusioned with the world around us. Yet becoming disillusioned is good. It's the preparation for deciding to follow Christ. Becoming disillusioned is a longing for truth, and it can be a key factor in making the decision for Christ. You see, most are content to live in the world the way it is. They hope the government and the police will reduce crime and improve the justice system. They imagine another scientific development might save the environment. 
They trust another pay rise will lessen their fears and give them security. They believe things are getting better in this world. Now, such people aren't likely to risk stepping out into the unknown by trusting their lives to Christ. We have to get sick of the ways of this world to gain an appetite for Christ. And Psalm 120 is the song of such a person. He is sick to the back teeth of lies and conflict. He's at the end of his tether over what's going on in the world. But Psalm 120 isn't merely a cry of desperation. It's a cry to a God who hears and answers. The psalmist can find no peace. The psalm opens with his talk of distress. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And the psalm closes with talk of war. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. By nature, people are set against each other. From birth, we have a natural tendency towards rivalry. The way of the world is restlessness. There's a constant yearning to come out on top. There's a continual desire to get our own back on anyone who has offended us. In this environment, the psalmist feels like a, a fish out of water. I am for peace, he says. But in the world around him, he can find no peace. He says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The distress that begins this psalm is a painful awakening. It's waking up to a truth that can no longer be avoided. Next, I want to see you, help you to see the psalmist waking up to the truth. Waking up to the truth. Now, I spoke earlier of the lies that people tell. And yet when you think about it, the whole outlook of the world around us is a far more pervasive lie. When the Holy Spirit begins to teach us spiritual truth, we come to a shocking realisation. The world isn't as it has been represented to us. Contrary to what the majority would have us believe, people aren't all right the way they are. And they're not getting better as time passes. We're fed the lie that human beings are basically nice and good. It's claimed that everyone is born innocent and entirely capable of running their own lives. We're fed the lie that we're born free. And if we're in any form of bondage, it's probably the result of our own efforts. We're fed the lie that we can become better people by doing things. All we need is just a little intelligence, a little effort, or a little time. And you know, people go on accepting these lies after centuries of evidence to the contrary. It beggars belief people can be so gullible. Yet the majority continue to believe these false assumptions. Nothing's going to shake them out of their complacency. They keep expecting things to get better somehow. And when they don't, they complain. It's the fault of the government. It's the fault of big business. It's the fault of bloodthirsty terrorists. The lie that everything's all right covers up, it perpetuates a deep wrong. 
It disguises the violence, the war and the greed that is natural to everyone's hearts. But when we become Christians, a painful realisation dawns on us. What we had assumed was the truth was actually a lie. And the psalmist's prayer of verse 2 becomes our prayer. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. We want to be saved from the lies of, psycho lies of psychologists. They tell us our behaviour and morals can be changed by simply talking them through. They tell us that if we offer their advice, follow their advice, we'll live a long, happy and successful life. But such therapy only addresses the symptoms of our trouble. It does nothing to deal with the cause. We need to be saved from such lies. We want to be saved from the lies of those who think they're moral people. They claim that if we do our best, if we live an outwardly decent life, then that's all that could be expected of us. We want to be saved from those who tell us about life but leave out Christ. These people claim to tell us what the human condition is, but they leave out everything about humanity's origin in God. They tell us nothing about how our salvation is in God as well. They talk about the world without telling us that God made it. They tell, talk about our bodies without telling us that God gave them life. They tell us how liberating it is to love without the constraints of morality. But they don't tell us about Christ. They don't tell us about the Christ who loves us without limit. They don't tell us about the Christ who gave himself for us without restraint. And do you know what the biggest, the most deadly lie of all is? It's the lie we tell ourselves. We lie to ourselves about who we really are and what our problems really are. Almost anything is preferable to admitting that we're guilty sinners. Our great aim is to avoid accountability. So we accumulate all sorts of explanations and excuses for our wrongdoing. We say it's due to our parents, our school, our genes, our hormones. Now, of course, we're all to an extent products of our environment and background. I'm not denying it. It's important we take account of that. But most people simply want, don't want to face the truth of who they are and what they've done. They don't want to admit that they're responsible for the bad things in their life. This is why the temptation to lie is so powerful. We want to protect ourselves from the truth which shows us what we're really like. But when we hear what Christians say, when we read a gospel tract, when we allow the Bible to speak to us or listen to an evangelistic sermon, then we start to realise that we're not the basically good, decent people we thought we were. We start to recognise that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We come to accept that no one does good, not even one. And we want to know how our human nature can be changed. We want to understand the scripture verse which says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the situation 
in which the author of Psalm 120 cries out to God to save him. He has reached the critical point. Reaching the critical point. Reaching the critical point. The psalmist prays, deliver me, O Lord. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. You and I have lived in the world of lies so long, we come to think of it as the norm. But if we turn to God, as I say, he exposes the world for what it is. It's then that God's Holy Spirit can reveal to our mind and heart the truth about everything. The truth that God makes us and loves us. The truth that it isn't mankind or Mother Nature that prevents the earth from destruction. The truth that it's God who rules the world, who sustains the earth, who provides for humanity's needs. The Holy Spirit reveals the Bible's truths about what's wrong in the world. We learn that we've sinned, we're refusing to acknowledge God as Lord of our lives. And the Spirit opens our minds and hearts to see the truth of what is at the centre of life. And that's Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and raised from the tomb for our salvation. The Bible that tells us if we repent of our sins and believe Christ died to save us, our sins will be taken away. The Holy Spirit will come himself and live in our heart and we will have new life in Christ. What I'm talking about here is a radical and fundamental change in our understanding of everything. It could be called a fork in the road of life. And Psalm 120 is about making a decision to take one way rather than the other. It's a decision that marks the transition from trust in human endeavour to trust in Christ. It's leaving the broad way that leads to destruction for the narrow way that leads to life. And the first step towards God is a step away from the world's lies. It's a renunciation of the lies we've been told about the human condition and the universe around us. It's a renunciation of the lies we've been told about ourselves, who we are, what we do. Listen now to verses 5 and 6. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Gadar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Meshech was a far-off tribe, thousands of miles from Palestine in what is now called southern Russia. Gadar was a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric reputation. It moved about along Israel's borders. These two represent the strange and the hostile. The psalmist's cry here could be paraphrased like this. I live in the midst of thugs and wild savages. This world isn't my home. I want to get out of it. This is the repentance that marks the beginning of the journey to Christ. Repentance is essential to coming to know Christ as our own personal saviour. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus began his own preaching by, his own earthly ministry by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostle Peter concluded his sermon on the day of Pentecost by preaching, 
Repent and be baptised, every one of you. We need to get the hint. We need to be clear that repentance isn't an emotion. It isn't feeling sorry for your sins. Yes, that will probably be involved. But that isn't the key meaning of repentance. Repentance is turning from one way to follow another way. Primarily, repentance is a decision. It's deciding that you've been wrong in supposing you could manage your own life for your own good. It's deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education or training to make it on your own. It's deciding you've been told a pack of lies about the you, yourself and the universe around you. It's deciding you've pack, believed a pack of lies about what you are and who you are. It's deciding that God in Christ Jesus is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realisation. It's realising what God wants from you and what you need from God. It's knowing that these things aren't going to be achieved by behaving in the same old way and thinking the same old thoughts. Repenting is deciding to accept God's call in Jesus Christ to become his disciple. Repentance puts us in touch with God. Now, of course, when we say no to the way of life we've been used to, it's painful. But that way of life is, in fact, the way of death. So the quicker we leave it, the better. Naturally, some are reluctant to leave an ungodly way of life. God may need to give them some painful prompts before they'd be willing to change. Verses 3 and 4 of our psalm perhaps will be taken as such promptings from God. What should be given to you, and what more should be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. What we have here could be seen as pictures of God's judgments. They're like penetrating arrows, like burning coals. God's judgments may be painful, but they're aimed at provoking repentance. Pain of judgment here is called down the ungodly, but it could be the means of their salvation. It could turn them away from their deceitful and violent ways to take the way of truth and peace. Any, any pain that puts someone on the path of peace and salvation is worth it. Any pain is worth it if it directs us to Christ and eternal life. And the only right way to respond to such pain is by acknowledging you're wrong, by repenting, rejecting the world's ways and accepting the Lord. Did you know the whole, Jewish, whole, the whole history of the Jewish nation was set in motion by one such act of world rejection? This was Abraham's rejection of his comfortable life in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a repository for much of the wisdom and wealth of the ancient world. But Abraham said no to it. Despite the prestige, despite the much-boasted greatness, despite all of that, there was something alien and false in that culture. The psalmist says in verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And Abraham too felt at odds with the pagan culture around him. 
Chaldean power and wisdom were founded on belief in false gods. Chaldean society and culture were formed around man-centered lies about life and the universe. So the day came when God called Abraham to leave Ur. And Abraham said no to all that he'd known and yes to God. He and his wider family became followers of God's way. They had to struggle against temptation. They had to struggle with conflict and sin, just as everyone does. But having said no to the world, they were going towards a closer relationship with God. Saying no to the prevailing mindset of the world released God's people to freedom in him. But to return to Psalm 120, some may be troubled by the psalmist's apparent vindictiveness. Is he right to call down God's judgment on the people of Meshach and Kedar? Shouldn't he rather be praying for his enemies? If we understand the psalmist correctly, what he's trying to do here is to alert these people to the danger they're in. He's trying to get them to see what he has seen, the need for change, the need to turn to the Lord. It's vital that they realise they're on the way to destruction. It's vital that they know they don't have to stay on that way. They can accept the Lord's invitation to the way that leads to life. All that's needed is repentance and trust in God. <coughs> this psalm can be seen as a call both to those who aren't God's people and to those who are. First, there's a call to those who aren't followers of Christ. Maybe they've come disillusioned with the world's prevailing outlook. They've grown weary of living with the world the way it is. No one has to continue living in that way. Repentance will start them on the way of following Jesus. It's a rejection that's also an acceptance. It's a leaving that develops into an arriving. It's a no to the world that's saying a yes to God. And for those who are already God's people, this psalm should be seen as a call to renewal. Perhaps we've let the world back into our lives again. Perhaps we've lost the vision of Christ we once had. If that's the way it is, then we must realise that we're living a compromise. So let us join with the psalmist on the way back towards a closer fellowship with Christ. Whoever we are, whatever our spiritual condition is, let us all echo the psalmist's cry, Deliver me, O Lord. Amen.